Amen. Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me at this time to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. And our message series is called Lessons from a Growing Church. Uh, and today we come both to the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We also come to the end of our message series on 1 Thessalonians. And uh, today we have really an impossible task before us because we've got 17 verses left which are jam-packed with instruction, and we cannot possibly look at each verse in depth. We just don't have the time. So today in our message, we're going to move fast, okay? Just be ready for that. Uh, We'll cover more breadth than depth, and we're going to cover a lot of different topics, because that's what Paul does, a lot of different topics as we finish out the letter. So let's ask for God's help right now with the message. Dear Lord, uh, we've got a lot to take in today, so Lord, open our ears, our hearts, uh, give us the energy to hear and receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we go, fasten your seatbelts, because we are going to speed our way through these last 17 verses together. And we're going to break it down into two major sections. Uh, you'll find an, an outline in your worship guide. I encourage you to take that along, take that out and follow along, especially today. It'll help you to follow along, but... You'll see the first section has to do with instructions concerning Christian community. And then the second section, a much shorter section, has to do with final words of blessing to the Christian community. So, let's look at verses 12 to 22 first. Here we find instructions concerning Christian community. Four different aspects of Christian life and community. We're going to look at instructions concerning leadership, fellowship, worship, and discernment. You say, I, I can't remember all four of those. You don't have to. It's all written down for you. Take out your outline. Follow along. All four areas there. So first of all, we have instructions concerning leadership. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Leadership is an important aspect of church life and community. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, uh, we read that Paul and Barnabas, as they spread the gospel to the various communities, they appointed elders for them in each church. They were very careful not to leave a newly planted church without established leadership. And that's because the church rises or falls on its leadership. Church leaders have certain responsibilities to the church, and church members have certain responsibilities to the leadership. And we find both of them uh, here, instructions about both. And so first we have responsibilities of the leadership towards the church. And uh, Paul outlines three responsibilities here. He says, hard work, pastoral care, spiritual direction. That sums up the responsibilities of the leadership to the church. He says, respect those who work hard among you. It's a word which means to grow weary or tired. It's a word that was usually used of hard physical labor. And uh, I hate to break it to you folks, but pastoral ministry is hard work. You know, I always get a chuckle. You know, when people say things to me like, boy, it must be great to be a pastor. You only have to work one hour a week on Sunday mornings. I always chuckle along with him. I go, yep, ministry hours are great. You just work half a day and you'll even get to pick which 12 hours of that half a day. Pastors preach. They 
pray, they teach, they visit, they counsel, they evangelize, they administrate. They're always on call. They are often missed by their families. Do I have an amen, Rosie? Amen. Ministry is hard work. You're tired at the end of the day. And I'm sure there's probably some lazy pastors out there, but I don't know any of them. The ones I know, they work hard at the ministry. So that's the first responsibility, hard work. Second responsibility, pastoral care. Paul says, respect those who are over you in the Lord. And that word over you, it's a, it's a word in the original language, which means to watch over or to, to care for. It was a word that was used to parents and guardians watching over, caring for their children. We find it uh, translated in 1 Timothy 3 as taking care of God's church. In other words, the pastor is responsible for the flock. He's the shepherd. He's the overseer. But notice what Paul says here. He says, your leaders are over you in the Lord. Okay, right? So, yes, the pastor may be over the flock, but he must never forget that he is under the Lord. The pastor is there to serve the church, not to rule over it. He will be held accountable to God for his leadership. And then the third responsibility is that of spiritual direction. Paul says, respect those who admonish you. Uh, to admonish is to warn or exhort. It means to counsel, correct, advise, instruct, to urge someone to follow a certain direction. How many of you just love to be admonished? No, we don't like to be admonished, do we, right? The pastor does this through preaching, teaching, counseling, confronting, and exercising church discipline. The pastor is responsible for the spiritual direction of the flock. So those are the pastor's responsibilities, leadership's responsibilities to the church. How about the church towards the leadership? Because the church also has responsibilities. Paul says two things here. He says, respect your leaders and hold them in the highest regard and love. Now, pastors always have a difficult time preaching these verses. And rightly so, because we do not want to be accused of self-interest. But, you know, it's part of Scripture. I can't just skip over this verse and go to the other parts. We, we need to see what God says here. And what God says here is that he commands the highest honor, love, and respect for those who lead the church. The word that's translated highest regard here, it, it, it's a word which means exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all measure. It's the same word we find in a different context, Ephesians 3.20, the context of prayer, where we say, now to him, to God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. It's, a, it's an extravagant word. And so Paul tells the Thessalonians, he says, when it comes to loving your pastors, he says, don't hold anything back. Hold them in the highest regard. Esteem them beyond measure. Do this out of love for them because of their work. Now, why would I tell you to love and honor and respect your pastors this way when, when I'm a pastor, okay? Well, I'll, I, believe me, it's not because I want or deserve it. And frankly, I'm embarrassed by the extravagance of Paul's language here. But this is God's word to his church. And I firmly believe that when a local church honors, loves, and respects its pastors, that God's blessing will be on that church in a special way. Some churches seem to have the ministry of beating their pastors up. They chew them up. 
And they spit them out faster than watermelon seeds, and then they wonder why God doesn't bless their church. Paul says, honor, respect, and love those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord. And then he adds a a final word here, both the leaders and the church together. I love this. And he says, live in peace with each other. Blessed is the church whose pastor and people love and care for each other and live in peace together. So those are our first set of instructions concerning leadership in Christian community. Next instructions have to do with fellowship, verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. This may be news to you, but the church of Jesus Christ is not made up of perfect people. And that includes your pastors, Pastor Dan and I. That includes us, okay? You've probably heard the old joke, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. Because you'll only mess it up. It won't be perfect anymore. You know, and in these verses, Paul tells us how to deal with two groups of people. How to deal with those who are troubled. And also how to deal with those who cause trouble. Okay, you got both in the church, don't you? First of all, verse 13, he describes three categories of troubled people. People who are troubled. The idle, the timid, and the weak. And it's possible that Paul has had these three groups in mind uh, all the way through the letter, certainly in the last couple chapters. Uh, Because he already spoke about the idle uh, back in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Remember, they were the busybodies, those who brought disrespect in the church of Christ by refusing to work, the idle. And then he spoke about the timid at the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. These were the people that were worried about Christ's return. They were concerned for their loved ones who had passed away. They were afraid of God's judgment when Christ returned, the timid. And then Paul addressed the weak at the beginning of chapter 4. The, the weak were those who struggled with temptation, especially in the area, whole area of sexual immorality. And notice how each of these three groups requires a different type of care. He said we should warn those who are idle. Why do we warn them? Because they present a poor testimony in the community and they bring disrespect in the church of Christ. He says we should encourage the timid. And how do we do that? By reminding them that Christ's return will be a glorious day and that we have nothing to fear when Christ returns. On the contrary, we look forward to uh, being reunited with our loved ones and we will be delivered from wrath and judgment by Jesus who died for us. And then he says, help the weak. And how do we do that? By encouraging them to stand strong in the face of temptation and to live a life that is pleasing to God. And then he gives us one, one other instruction for dealing with those who are troubled here. He says, be patient with everyone. I'm sure you've seen the poster. Be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. Well, guess what? God isn't finished with any of us, Right? We all have plenty of shortcomings and faults. We need to be patient with each other. Now, next verse, Paul moves from those who are troubled to those who cause trouble. And he has a couple words of instruction here. First, he says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. When someone's causing trouble, when someone does you wrong, don't return the favor. As Christians... We are not allowed the luxury of retaliation. 
So do not strike back. Don't try to get even. Make sure that no one else in the church fellowship does either. See, God only allows one kind of payback. Only one kind of payback, and that is good for evil. Not evil for evil. Certainly not evil for good. Good for evil. And instead of seeking revenge, Paul says, always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. And, uh, uh, and this phrase, to be kind, is a very strong word in the original language. It means to pursue the good. So this is not some half-hearted attempt at kindness, but this is a full-fledged pursuit of that which is good for those who've done you wrong. For those who have mistreated you. Notice Paul extends his command beyond the body of Christ. He says we're to do what's good for each other and for everyone else. And so those outside of the body of Christ, if they mistreat you, if they do you wrong, these instructions apply also. So we've looked at instructions for leadership, for fellowship. Now we come to instructions about worship. Verses 16 through 18. This was our memory passage for this week. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. These three verses are quick to read, easy to understand, but oh so hard to follow. Be joyful always. Being joyful is a choice. It's an attitude. Someone might say, well, Can't I just be joyful when everything's going good, when everything's going my way? God says, no. You see, circumstances may change, but God never does. God is always faithful, always loving, always there for you. You may walk through the darkest valley, but take heart because Jesus walks with you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? God is good. All the time, therefore, be joyful all the time. Be joyful always. The Christian who stops being joyful stops professing the goodness of God. Joy is the hallmark of Christian worship. And this is true in your individual life. And when we gather as the body of Christ, worship is simply delighting in the goodness of God. Delighting in who God is. You can't have worship without joy any more than you can have an ocean without water. Psalm 105 says, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Be joyful always. That's our first instruction on worship. Secondly, pray continually. Or as our old translations had it, pray without ceasing. Now that that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean that all you do is pray, okay? It doesn't mean you wake up in the morning, roll out of bed, land on your knees, and just stay there all day, and then roll back into bed at the end of the day, okay? It doesn't mean all you do is pray. Rather, it means that prayer accompanies all that you do. In other words, don't leave God out of anything. Talk to Him throughout the day. Praise Him. Thank Him. Ask for His guidance and His help. If if you stumble, if you fall, confess your sin. Receive His forgiveness. In all that you do, give Him the praise and the glory. Prayer for the Christian should be as normal and as natural as breathing. Private and public worship of God are both marked by a continual attitude of prayer. I like what D.L. Moody once said about this. 
Uh, he's talking about prayer, and he, he told the congregation, he says, I never pray for more than five minutes at a time. Everybody was shocked. The great D.L. Moody. He never prays for more than five minutes at a time. But then he followed it up with this. But I never go five minutes without praying. Pray continually. Pray without ceasing. Make it part of your daily life. And then thirdly, give thanks in all circumstances. Notice it doesn't say for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. We certainly don't thank God for sin or for sickness or for evil in the world, but we do thank him in the midst of all these things because this is part of our worship. We trust that God is above our circumstances and that he is in sovereign control over all things. We recognize God's blessings even in the midst of our deepest trials and we give him thanks. Christians are not only joyful people and praying people, we are thankful people. We recognize that every good thing that we have in our lives comes from God. And we thank him accordingly. And so part of our private and public worship should always include giving thanks to God. And especially giving thanks for the wonderful gift of salvation that God has given us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can never thank God enough. Therefore, we should give thanks at all times. And in all circumstances. Paul closes out this section by saying, For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's God's will for you to be joyful always, to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances. This is what God wants. It's his desire for your life. It's what he requires of us as his people in worship. Constant joy, unceasing prayer, continual thanksgiving. So we've got instructions on leadership and fellowship and worship. And then he closes out this first section now in Christian community with several instructions about discernment. Discernment. Look at verses 19 through 22 with me next. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. You see, Christian community cannot exist without discernment. Part of the church's mission, part of the church's function is to discern truth from error. And so Paul gives following instructions now concerning discernment in the church. And we can break it down into two things. First, he says, do not reject that which comes from God. And he speaks about the Spirit of God and the Word of God here. Do not reject what comes from God. He says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't reject that which comes from God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit burns like a flame within the church of Christ. He longs to ignite our hearts in passionate worship of God and loving service to each other. So don't quench that. Don't quench the Spirit of God. Don't stand in God's way. Don't put out what the Spirit is doing in your midst. And then when he says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, he's talking about the word of God. Don't reject that which comes from God's word. Prophecy is the gift of speaking God's word to man. You might remember we talked about this near the beginning of this series when we talked about how to listen to a sermon. We saw there that the preaching of God's word is prophetic. It's God's word to man through man. And that you should receive the word of God, not as the word of man, Paul said, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Paul says, do not treat this with contempt. 
It's a word which means to disregard, to consider of no account. Paul is saying, do not disregard God's word when it is, when it is preached. Do not consider God's word of no account. And so Paul's saying the same thing. He's saying, don't reject what comes from God, whether it comes from God's spirit or God's word. Do not reject that which comes from God. Now, there's an important corrective to this, which he gives in the next two verses. And we could sum it up this way. Do not accept everything that claims to come from God, right? Don't reject that which truly comes from God, but don't accept everything that claims to come from God. Because not everything that claims to come from God really does. There are false prophecies and there are false manifestations of the Spirit. And so God calls us to be wise and discerning. He says, test everything. And after you've tested it, hold on to the good and avoid the evil. And so Christian community can only be truly Christian when it faithfully adheres to the Word of God. That's how you test everything according to the Word. Test it by the Word of God. Test it by the Gospel of Christ. Test it by the character of the speaker as measured by the Word of God. Test it by its fruits in the body of Christ. Hold on to that which is good. Get rid of the evil. Exercise discernment in the body of Christ. And so this first section that we're looking at this morning is just so amazing. This is Paul's bold vision of church life in community. Four things. Number one, godly pastoral leadership, which which is reciprocated by the love and respect of the people. Number two, loving church fellowship, which cares for each other's hurts and bears with each other's faults. Number three, vibrant worship of God, which is characterized by joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. And number four, wise spiritual discernment, which holds to the truth and guards against error. Isn't that a beautiful description of the body of Christ? Isn't that what we want to aspire to as a church? This is what Christian community is all about. And then finally, we move to the the last section, verses 23 through 28. And here is where Paul gives his final words of blessing to the Christian community at Thessalonica. Now, we're used to when we hear that word final, thinking that the pastor is almost done. Okay, and uh, and and probably thought the people thought Paul was winding down here. But he just keeps going and going and going. And so guess what? The pastors are going to keep going and going and going. Okay, we, we want to get through this. So, but these are his final words of blessing. He begins with a prayer for sanctification. You know what? Paul's final words in his letters often pick up on various themes that he's addressed throughout the letter. And here in this prayer, he picks up on two themes that we saw earlier in the letter. Sanctification and the return of Christ. Look at verses 23 and 24. He prays, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. We saw earlier in our series that sanctification means to grow in holiness, to grow more and more like Jesus. We've seen how Paul has emphasized Christian growth throughout this letter. Even when the Thessalonians were doing good, he said, Thessalonians, you're doing great. You're doing great in this area. Now do even more. Do even more. He always wants us to be growing. He says, I pray God will sanctify you through and through. It's a word that means to be complete in all respects. Paul's vision for sanctification in the Christian's life is absolute, unqualified, unreserved dedication of your life to God in Jesus Christ. And unless you've already reached that in your life, guessing that none of us are quite there yet, that means you still have room to grow. I still have room to grow. 
And notice that you can't do it on your own. Paul doesn't pray that, pray that, you know, that we'll sanctify ourselves. He says, I pray that God himself will do this. That he will sanctify you through and through. He is the God of peace, the God of shalom, of wholeness and completeness. And he alone can sanctify fully. He goes on to say, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the return of Christ theme. And the idea of wholeness and completion continues here. God's desire is that every single aspect of your life and person may be kept blameless. That word kept means to guard or protect. It's a word that was used of uh, the soldiers guarding Jesus' tomb. It's the same word Jesus used when he prayed for his disciples in John 17. That my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He says, I want God to protect you and guard you and keep your whole spirit, soul, and body blameless, without accusation. That's what that means. Earlier in the letter, Paul said that he and his missionary companions, when they were there at Thessalonica, he said, we conducted, conducted ourselves blamelessly. No one can bring any accusation against us. Now Paul prays the same thing for you and for me. For such a complete sanctification of spirit, soul, and body that no one will bring any accusation against you at the coming of Christ. And then he concludes this prayer with just this beautiful word of assurance in verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And Paul has no doubt that we will in fact reach ultimate sanctification. But that's because his confidence is not in us or in our own strength of will. His confidence is in God, our faithful God who calls us to glory. So let me ask you, do you ever get discouraged over your spiritual growth? Do you, do you ever wonder, it's like, man, I thought I'd be further along by now. You know, some of those pesky sins keep cropping up and up again. It's like, oh, Lord, here I am again. I can't, I can't believe it. I'm so sorry. Take heart. God would not have called you to heaven if he did not intend to bring you there perfected and blameless. In the meantime, pray along with Paul that God will continue to sanctify you through and through. Pray that you can grow to become more and more like Jesus. This is your calling and your hope as a Christian. This is your destiny. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Now Paul has three final words of instruction. There's that word final again. We're, we're getting there, okay? Look at verses 25 to 27 with me now. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So first he says, pray for us. You know, Paul's told them re- repeatedly throughout this letter how he prays for them. Now he asks for their prayers. He addresses them as brothers. Yes, he is an apostle, but they are all on equal ground before the Lord. And he needs their prayers as much as they need his. Brothers, pray for us. Secondly, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. We find the the mention of this holy kiss several times in the New Testament. And 1 Peter, it's phrased a little differently. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Uh, But you've got to remember, culturally, the kiss was a very common greeting of affection in Paul's day. People in Eastern cultures uh, still often use the kiss as a greeting. You've seen that, right? You have the double kiss on on, on the two cheeks and things like that. And and so Paul encourages Christians, really, if we're going to put it in today's terms, to greet each other with holy affection. With holy affection. For most of us, that probably means a holy hug or a holy handshake, okay? Culturally, that's what we do. But, you know, some may feel comfortable with a holy kiss. 
But it's that word holy that guards against the misuse of affectionate greeting in the church. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and therefore we should greet each other as family. That's why we have a greeting time in our morning service. That's why uh, the pastors, we like to stand out there after the service and greet you on your way out from church. We're family, and so greetings of brotherly affection are appropriate. And then his third instruction is found in verse 27. He says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. This is an amazing verse. Uh, Paul's language is surprisingly strong here. This word charge means to put someone under a solemn oath. To cause someone to swear by something. And not only that, Paul, Paul says, I charge you before the Lord. And that means he's saying, hey, God himself is watching over you on this one. And he is going to hold you accountable to obey this command. And this becomes even more amazing when you think about what the early church did. When they gathered in public to worship... They would read the Old Testament scriptures. They would read the word of God publicly. And now what does Paul do? He commands them to read his letter. This letter that he's just written to them. He says, read this letter out loud in the fellowship. And he solemnly charges them before the Lord to fulfill this duty. In other words, Paul places this letter, 1 Thessalonians, one of the earliest letters uh, written in the Bible. He places this letter on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. And this eventually takes place with all the New Testament letters. You know, the churches would read these letters out loud in their assemblies. They copied them. They passed them around. Eventually, all the letters were gathered together and and together with our Gospels. And that's how we got our New Testament. It's amazing. And then Paul closes out the letter with a final. This is the, the real final one, the last one. With a final word of benediction in verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Did you know that Paul begins and ends every one of his letters with grace? And how appropriate because all of Christianity begins and ends with grace. We've seen it all the way through this message series. It's the gospel of grace that gives birth to the church. That was our first message, which sustains the church and defines the church. Salvation is by grace. Christian growth and sanctification are by grace. And we look forward to the day of Christ's return. Why? Because we have set our hope fully on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's all about grace because it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this amazing letter of 1 Thessalonians. Lord, sometimes it's easy uh, to forget that this was a young church, three months old. A young, growing church facing persecution. And Lord, you bless them with this amazing letter full of so many lessons and instructions, not only for them, but Lord, in your wisdom and in your foresight, this letter was meant for us today. Lord, we've learned so much. We need to go back. We need to start at chapter 1, verse 1 and read through this letter again and and, uh, review all that we've learned. And Lord, I pray that you would make this letter true in the life and fellowship of our church. Help us in our Christian fellowship and community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.